if the consumer is buying a $15,000 kitchen, my question to the industry is, is your product really going to be that much better than a standard size offering? And, and, that's, and that's something that I'm, I'm, I genuinely want people to think about. So welcome to episode nine of Site2 Studio. Uh, it's a podcast where we talk to construction industry individuals about cool things industry related and to learn about their journeys and their stories. Right. Thanks for having me, Charlie. Headed. So uh, today's guest is Steve. Um, and what really intrigued me about what Steve is doing is uh, I think it's really going to shake up or it has certainly has the potential to really shake up the cabinet making industry in Australia. And obviously that's something that holds close to me because I run a cabinet making business. Uh, so I really wanted to have you on to learn about what you guys are doing uh, and how, you know, what what's the macro vision of what you're trying to create? How is that going to tie into the industry? What that means for the consumer, for the industry participants, and for you guys as a company? Right. Let's talk. That's, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So uh, let's start off by just, um, just could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and? Sure. So um, mid forties, uh, been not working, I've been working for Laminex for five and a half years now. My background is actually corporate finance. Mm-hmm. So um, left Sydney in my mid twenties to go travel the country and see the sites, uh, landed in Perth and worked for a company called iInet. Uh, internet service provider based out of Perth. My role there was corporate planner, and that meant um, basically working on their big projects and leading a team that ran acquisitions, that business. They were going through aggregation, and my role was to um, to lead those. So uh, 36 different ISP buyers later and a few investments on the way through. That was really what I specially specialised for a while. Um, a little bit homesick and my wife wanted to go back to uni so I went back to Sydney um, where I grew up and my wife is from Melbourne so I stayed there for a few years while she finished her uni degree and then back to Melbourne when we had kids. Mm. So um, moved down to Melbourne, I worked a couple of jobs but mostly here at Ionet, Mm. sorry here at uh, Laminex and and my role is uh, part of the senior leadership team. Mm. I came in as the head of transformation uh, so really a change management role and fixing the big issues within the business, which is a never-ending journey, uh, focusing on um, improving their contact centre, focusing on improving their supp- supply chain and how we deliver for customers, uh, delivering a um, digital e-commerce platform that's uh, gone live over the last two years and now focusing on this project, which um, which is a new business we started called Haven Kitchens by Formica. Right. So I want to give you my understanding of what Haven Kitchens is, and then you'll tell me where I'm right or where I'm wrong. Sure. So the problem in the industry is, uh, feel free, don't worry about the noise or anything. It's (laughs) not that serious. Um, So the problem in the industry is uh, there's many small operators in terms of cabinet makers doing largely the same thing, creating a largely homogenous product rather inefficiently. And Haven Kitchens can centralize a lot of the production components of that production process and uh, do it more efficiently than the market at large, package that into a product for 
those cabinet makers who would otherwise be producing for themselves, uh, a product that's desirable to the consumer, um, and make a certain part of the industry more efficient. In uh, probably one way of looking at really the problem, if you kind of stand back from it, is really an industry-wide problem, not necessarily with how cabinet makers work, mm. but more for the threats that exist for that trade. And um, as the Laminex business sees it, cab- cabinet makers are a heart and soul. Mm. Uh, that's what the Laminex business really relies on for its success. It's Australian manufacturing. It's very focused on um, supporting Australian jobs and the trade and supplying into those trades. What we've been seeing well, well before my time starting with Laminex over the last 15 years is disruption. And so we've seen that a few times now. The, um, the disruption to the post-forming business through the change from high-pressure high pressure laminate to engineered stone bench tops, that's one that's really um, felt closely by Laminex. The disruption to the um, furniture-making industry that really doesn't exist in Australia in its form that it did 10, 15 years ago, that's all gone off- offshore. Now, there's some amazing um, furniture makers here in Australia, but it's nothing like it was 15 years ago. We see a similar level of disruption, maybe a little slower, um, but the same type of disruption happening within the cabinet-making trade. And that's that's driven by a couple of things. Firstly, um, it's an expensive trade to be in. It's it's a tough trade on your body, um, given the equipment that you need and the level of startup. It's a a risk. it's it's a trade that has probably not attracted as many into it that have then have been retiring, but the big disruption has really been the change in the way the market is demanding product, and so um, there's still the premium end product. There's still a, a nice heart of market for um, good quality kitchens, but what we've seen is the emergence of flat pack, faster model, low cost produced product that's been growing over time. It's probably twenty percent market share today. If you if you look globally. Um, Australia today is probably where somewhere like the UK was 20 years ago and it was a very similar structure and today there is really no um, at disaggregated large cabinet maker industry in the UK at all. And so if, if you accept that that change is growing and creeping uh, over time, then you'd say that the Australian cabinet maker industry is under threat and we need to respond to that. Right. So, um, so our thinking is there is really no large industry body that represents the cabinet makers. Um, to to band together those nine thousand cabinet maker businesses to mm. to go and fight the fight that needs to be fought to um, to really survive as an industry is going to be difficult. Somebody needs to take the front, and we've we've made that choice to do that. Right. Um, I think one interesting way of looking at Haven and how it fits into the market would be sort of who are the key stakeholders and what what value it presents to to each one of those. Um, I see sort of the key stakeholders as being Laminex as a as a company as a business, uh, the consumer, and the cabinet maker. W- would there be anyone else really involved in that process? No, I, I think that pretty much nails it. The yeah. um, the supply and the, and it's not just Laminex. Mm. Is um, we've We've recognised that there's many different suppliers that support the Australian cabinet making industry. Sure, the Blooms, the Headaches, the um, sure. You know, but just Haven Haven Kitchens as a venture in itself. Yeah, and so I, if you don't mind, I'd like to start with the consumer because sure. I think it all starts with the consumer because that's who drives the demand. Do you, do you see uh, where, where do you see the demand or what's the value proposition to the consumer for a 
what I presume Haven trying to produce is a well-priced, uh, not custom, so with, with within select ranges, so kitchens, robes, cabinet-making products. What's that value proposition for the consumer? Sure, there's a few. Um, and maybe if I just step back to what the Haven model is. Sure, perfect. Um, to then how that plays out for the consumer and then for the trade and then for others as well. So uh, the Haven model is a, it's a trade only. So the model we'd only sell to trades, um, but we do interact with the homeowner by providing a um, 3D CAD visualisation design service. Um, it's an in-stock model and it's a, um, it's a curated bespoke or curated type range that we offer. And the, and the reason we've done those things is to solve some problems for each of those stakeholders that you've just mentioned. Mm-hmm. What, one of the issues that um, we hear from the consumers and from the trade is that um, there's a challenge with speed. So there's, um, there's a block type TV shows, those kind of things that have set an expectation for the homeowner. And then there are, um, there's just constraint within the market, particularly going into Christmas time. So what we hear consistently, if you want a kitchen for Christmas time, it's now uh, September, and really the reality of being able to walk in the door and get your kitchen done before Christmas is diminishing every day. So what we hear from our customers, the trade, um, the cabinet makers, is that they're turning a lot of jobs away because that that confluence of um, I can see it getting done really quickly on TV shows versus I'm actually being told to wait three, four, five months for something I really want it for Christmas. They're they're turning away disappointed. So faster lead times for the client. Yep. For the consumer. That's yep. that's a that's big thing. That's another bit. Yeah. The the other thing that we can offer is really um, if if you think of growing an industry as well. Um, now this is some way down the track, but one that we we really see some potential in the average kitchen life is twelve years, twelve and a half years. I think is the average kitchen life in Australia. Um, the ability to have a standard sized offer into the market allows us to help our trade customers basically build that market further. They can go back and revisit that home after eight, nine years, even even faster, um, and do a refit of that relatively easily, and then basically grow the whole size of the pie. I just I just want to make sure I'm understanding that correctly. So how does your product affect the the life cycle cost of a kitchen and how a tradesman gets back into a home quicker. So, so maybe it's an emotional type discussion. Yeah. What we um what we know as the Laminex business, we sell a lot of decorated board and that's that's what the Laminex business stands for. We um have factories around the country that focus on doing that. What the majority of kitchens that sell into the market are white and grey. And okay. that that <laughs> choice is really driven by um concern of risk of what if I get it wrong? Mm. I, I think that's my hypothesis. Um, or I'm doing this for sale, so I want to make the kitchen as um, as neutral as possible, so someone can bring their own colour to it. Or I just don't know if it's going to um, li- live through a colour cycle. You know, three or four years time, I'll, I'll be sick of this colour and I'll be I've had enough. the The ability to sell a kitchen to the homeowner, firstly, the the design service with CAD visualization makes the homeowner a lot more comfortable, or helps them really see what the end product's going to look like. I'm hoping it also lets them to be a little bit more adventurous, mm. that I, I can take some risk and have a kitchen that I really love. But the downside risk of getting that wrong is minimal for a couple of reasons. Firstly, um, by an in-stock model, they can we can get the product into the home where our trade customers can bring the ho- product into the home, see it in space, and if they hate it, no problems, package it back up, bring it back. The second challenge is also, or that we think this model helps solve, 
is that six, seven years' time, when they do get sick of it, just refacing the kitchen, so basically I take the door fronts off and re-click on the new ones, um, is a lot easier in this model rather than I have to go get that remeasured, start again um, to to be able to turn my kitchen over and get a new look. Right, and, and I think if we just give uh, people who might not be in the industry some context, if you're going to measure in alterations and additions like a kitchen reface, uh, that might be – might end up being 70% of the cost of just redoing the whole kitchen because it's such an inefficient process of measuring every door uh, just to, you know, to refate, you know, measuring all the hinge locations, especially when we're so used to just drawing a parametric cabinet in a cabinet vision, cab master, whatever software you use, and it just drills everything and cuts everything for you. Yeah. So it's highly inefficient. And what you're saying is because it's an in-stock standard size model that there will be components that you can easily swap out. Exactly. And, and we're not doing that for us, um, the whole well we are, um, but really what we do is then go back to the original trade that we purchased that and, and basically create a database for them to say, hey, this, this kitchen's now at year six, year seven. What we're finding is a lot of those customers are wanting to rethink, um, and, but the cost of that's prohibitive, so they normally wait to year 12. Why don't you go back and have a conversation and see if there's something they want to upgrade? Right. Or, or they've had their first home and they, they came in as a cutting edge door. They're now probably ready to upgrade to a vinyl or a foil or a paint. Um, and that's something that's relatively easy to do. Right. So for the consumer, number one is lead time. You can get it done quicker. Exactly. Uh, number two is more flexibility in the design. You can give them more confidence with 3D design. That's, that's more homogenous. I think everyone's doing 3D designs. Um, but the products, the depth of the product skew allows the consumer to also swap out components very easily. The idea of delivering a kitchen and packaging it up and sending it back, that's that's interesting as well. Yep, and there's probably a fourth point as well, which I missed on the way through, which is if there's damage to any part of your kitchen in the first however long that, mm. that you've got it. So um, we all know the challenges with products like paint mm. um, that they can scratch or they can chip. Uh, if you have any of those challenges, now they're obviously covered by warranty. You typically get seven years, but eight years, what do you do? Um, either you need to go replace the whole kitchen or um, or what you can do with this model is it's one or two doors, you take them off, they're easily replaced. Right. Okay, so that's that's for the consumer. So it's uh, – um, I, I, I think I also see for the consumer it's, uh, it's kind of like why I – you know, a lot of people in the industry don't like volume builders like Metricon and whatnot – but I'm I'm very open to recommending people build with Metricon because it's such a confidence inspiring process for the consumer where they don't have to worry about so much. Uh, they just go in, pay their money, make their selections, and then they've got a house. It's big, shiny, and uh, relatively void of risk compared to building with a a smaller. Builder. They're very very good at what they do. Um, so that's and I I see that as an advantage as well because. Um, yeah, just being just there is inherently, you know, for the consumer, it can be better to deal with a bigger company. Um, more often than not, perhaps that's the case. Yeah, yeah, and probably again for the consumer, mm. it's a it's a good point you're making there by being backed by a multinational corporate, which is um, Laminex backed mm. by the Fletcher Building Group. Um, our customers, the trade, are really able to inspire that confidence that. Um, I don't, I don't know you as a cabinet maker. I don't know how long you're going to be around. You look pretty old. You might be retiring at some point. Those kind of mm. thoughts that can go through a homeowner's mind can be taken away really by um, you know, pointing back to the backing that sits behind the, the kitchen that they're looking to install. Right. 
So for the tradesmen, for the industry folk who would otherwise be building kitchens uh, themselves, what what's in it for them? I guess put it. Yeah, it's the million simply. dollar question, isn't it? Um, there, there's there's a lot in there. Um, what what we're hearing, f- firstly, our motive when you come back to it is to really protect the industry, and, and we've kicked this around for years and years about the different ways of being able to address this. What we've landed on is this model, and very very focused on just being for the trade. We'll only sell to the trade. One of our core principles, our core principle, is making the trade's life easier, and everything that we do really revolves around that. So the way we've constructed the model to support the trade is a couple of different things. Um, the design service, the, um, the in-stock model is really focused around the concept of time and the, the way that we can take away a lot of the front-end non-paid work that the trade engage in so that we can – now, now often we'd, we'd love the trade to come with us for those consults, um, but if, if they're too busy, they're doing installs, great. Um, we, we can take a lot of that initial, initial time investment that they're getting that they might not even win the job. So if you're winning 50, 60% of the jobs you're quoting on, it's, it's down the toilet for the rest. And you're not getting paid for the ones that you do win either for that part of it. <coughs> Pardon me. So, um, so the services that we've built are around helping the trades make more money. And so the way we do that is a couple of different things. The, the product has been designed and constructed in such a way that should allow for faster install. Uh, it's been designed in a way that all of that front in- investment that I mentioned we, we can absorb within our business rather than um, have the, the small cabinet maker really taking their time in it. And then um, all of the other features that we've put around that, so um, credit terms, uh, by being in stock, you can really come into one location rather than having to run to multiple different suppliers. The whole point is that a job that would normally take three or four days worth of pre-investment, we've done at least 50, 60, 70% of that time work for you. Right. So that's... So the time component is a is a big one, and and I think a lot of cabinet makers don't factor in those costs when they're looking at their gross margins or or when they're pricing up jobs, you know. And uh, whilst there certainly is a push or a recognition that that cabinet makers spend a lot of time upfront for no money, and that we should be charging for designs or whatever. More, I'm speaking more so for the guys working in in uh, domestic or retail kitchens, which is the market that you'll be operating in. Um, I think there's certainly recognition that that we are spending too much time for no money. So what Haven does is we'll do that legwork for you upfront, and we'll give you a the customer. Is that right? Or so way, how, how does that how lead does connect? Yeah, it's a the, great question. How does the lead generation and the customer journey? How, how does that work? Yeah, the, there's two different journeys that really end with us having a conversation with the customer. First, firstly, we'll never provide the price to a homeowner. And we'll never provide a design to the homeowner. We provide those to the trade and they choose to do with it as they see fit. The, the customer arrives to us in two different ways. One, um, they've gone to the, the cabinet maker, the trade themselves first, and that, that trade partner has recommended, how about we use a Haven kitchen or, um, or I'll come with you to do and use my designer or a, a, a designer that I have, which is our, our employee, um, to come and do that check measure design quote exercise. So you so just not to go too deep on a single point, but your designers will do a site measure as well. Yes, they will. Okay, that's very interesting. Now, our, our preference is that the trade's there for that because, <laughs> um, but but we'll wear the risk of uh, getting that wrong. And the beauty of being in stock also is if we do get it wrong, which will happen from time to time, hasn't 
yet, but is likely to at some point. Um, by being in stock, we bring the cabinet back, replace it with the one that does fit. Okay, I'm I'm just going to skip skip a little bit because I I find that point very interesting because my plain devil's advocate I I, I thought well of course Haven is going to isn't going to manage the on site stuff at all because that is the most that's the one part that you really can't control and that's where things go wrong. So what's your th- what was the thinking behind offering the the measure? So as a service and also taking responsibility for the measure. Yeah, what, what we'd love is that the, um, the, the trader ultimately signing off that the, that the final measure is fit for serve purpose or it's, it's constructed in such a way that the trade's really comfortable to install that and ultimately the finished product and how it's installed is the responsibility of the trade. Okay. What, what we take responsibility is that the product is um, compliant with Australian standards, that it meets the designs that we've offered and that, um, and then we'll fix any problems that really come up as part of that install um, that we could reasonably have foreseen on the way as we've done that design. Right. So, so what we're finding to date is that um, there's a real rush for trades. They don't have the time to do a lot of that work. We're doing it on their behalf. Uh, we're providing it. And when they first go to the site, the trades can, and I'm ready to install it. I'll remeasure that just to double check. And then if they fi- they find a problem or we hadn't properly considered, you know. Um, protrusions into the wall or those kind of things or we've put the tap in the wrong spot um no problems get on the phone and we'll, we'll fix it right now i still haven't answered mm. your first question mm. which was around how does the homeowner come to us yeah what's that customer journey yeah, yeah so um one they'll come to us with the trade mm. so um what we're finding and i'll just dig, dig into that one a little bit if i can at the moment please, please. But what we're finding is um that there is trades that have reached capacity and that they are turning homeowners away because they don't have time to be able to deal with or, or that customer doesn't really fit their model. So um, I'm interested in premium jobs, um, but I'm getting knocked on the door a lot for guys who are either tie kickers or um, – so so they can send those customers to us and we'll happily um, engage them on the trade's behalf. And then if that turns into a job, then obviously it comes back to the trade. Or they come to so we've what we've built is a um, is a showroom type model, not high street. It's more of a selection center. Mm. So the first consult happens within the home with the trade or us individually. Um, we'll do the check measure. We'll do the interview with the homeowner and understand exactly what it is that they want. Turn that into the CAD visualization and a quote that goes back to the trade who goes and seeks to win the job. Right. The, the second way um, the homeowner comes to us is we are a known brand. Um, looking to become a more known brand as well. And so we're doing uh, Facebook marketing, digital marketing, those kind of things. And the purpose of us doing that is to then feed and grow our customers, our trade customers' business. So the service we want to offer is not just the fact that we can help you grow your business by doing more kitchens per week. We can also help you grow your business by driving traffic your way. How does that lead generation and distribution work? Or how do you see it working? I'm, I'm sure it'll evolve and change and whatnot, but how do you see that working? So, Do you have designated areas or how, how does that work? Yeah, so we right now we've got um, four trade centre locations. Uh, we're southeast Melbourne focused, really. Um, so we're not, we're not doing any activity outside of really those regions. So what, what we're looking to do is help. What, what we're hearing is um, there's a real disparity. There's either those customers, those trade customers that are so busy 
I just can't take any more work on. And that's that's COVID and you know, market cycle. There's a it's a fairly healthy market at the moment. But then there's others that aren't enjoying that. So we're looking for those partners as well who have capacity, who we can feed work to and help help grow their business. Right. I, I think just to help the point of how what this means for the cabinet makers sort of hit home, this sort of model has been done or and is being done in, in other countries and in other regions like in Europe very and it's become quite a mature model, if not the leading way people were having kitchens built. How does it, could you tell us, let's say a tradesman in the UK, how are they working and how's that different to how we are working here? Like, how, where do you see the future going? How, how does it play out? If, if, if yeah. we're wrong, like a case study of how a tradesman yeah. works yeah. day to day. And, and the UK model is a really good one um, to look at. So, if you go back 20 years in Australia, it looked a lot in the UK, it looked a lot like Australia does today mm. a um, highly fragmented, um, multiple different cabinet makers, small. Who um who did bespoke jobs into the home, the um the Bunnings equivalent over there is a business called B and Q. Uh, B and Q had entered the market and grew rapidly and was taking share similar to what we're seeing happen with um the Caboodle offer here today, IKEA similar type offers. Um, over time that has transitioned. So the Howden's business is um is the an equivalent type business over there. They've got market share of thirty percent, and now the rest of the market is made up of. Howden's, the IKEA um, B&Q offer, and a, another large business called Ren. So there, there are still multiple cabinet makers in the market, but nowhere near that what there was 20 years ago. That, that transition has happened fairly rapidly, um, really driven by um, the same market dynamics that we're seeing here in Australia. Um, so our concern is that the small cabinet maker that exists today either needs to change to be successful in what that model will look like in 10, 15 years' time yeah. or recognise the fact that it, there's, there's risk in that strategy. We yeah. might be wrong, um, but if, if we leave it too long to find out, then we've left it too long. So just, just help us understand what, what the operations of a cabinet maker in the UK and how does that, what does that look like compared to a cabinet maker here? Yeah, so, um, so the cabinet makers there are either very large, high-speed, automated um, as in, as in the cabinet makers, is in the trades like the tradesmen who, who would say twenty years ago have had their own factory. How are they operating so, now? So they've form, formed into one of two different major groups there now. There's still the cabinet maker who does the um, the high end bespoke beautiful kitchen that um, that we see in Australia, and probably the equivalent of the fifty thousand dollar plus type level. Uh, anything below that level is now an in store market rather than a, a made market. Now, now there's some, but not many. They're really predominantly coming from um, those high-speed mega factories that um, that produce um, standard-sized cabinets into the market. So, so there's been a transition over time to the cabinet maker is now an installer. They're still a specialist. At, um, they have a lot of the same trade skills. So they'll make a cabinet to fit a space, but they're not making the rest of the kitchen. Right. So. That means that without being custom, you also don't need 200 mil fillers. Sorry, one more time. That yeah. means despite not being a custom build, you, you're not going to have two, like a 200 mil filler. It's, it's unlikely. Because um, firstly, it's unlikely because of the, the breadth of the range and, yeah. and the breadth and the depth of the range, but also the cabinet maker. Will, so the, the cabinet maker's job day to day, so that w- how are they working? So they won't have a factory. They'll just work out of a van. 
they'll get the kitchens delivered to the client's home after uh, after that sale has happened and they'll build and install the kitchen on site. That's exactly it. So um, si- similar type offer that what Haven's brought into the Australian market. They'll, um, they'll walk into the door, there's a check measure completed by that stage, a design completed, and, uh, and then basically that turns into a, a pick list of what the, um, what the parts are. And then that's delivered to site or picked up by the trade. They're they're a ninety five percent pickup model um, in the UK. So the the trade has has formed around being able to just basically pick up, go to site. It'll be a team of two or three, and they'll look to install a kitchen in a day and a half. Right. What? So one particular challenge, and the UK may have been like this twenty years ago, but in Australia, I feel like the consumer loves customizing. The consumer loves. And because everything is so custom, right, in this market. So, how do we get over? How does a consumer get over the idea of everything? Eighty-five percent of it is great, but there's that fifteen percent that I just can't get. And is it is it going to be a case of well, if you want that fifteen percent, then you're going to have to pay an extra thirty percent in terms of the cost delta by going to a custom cabinet maker? Is that going to be the difference, or what's going to be the selling point for them? There, I, I think there's a couple of things in that. If you if you look at the Australian market today, there's probably um, a lot of things that happen under the hood. So if if you want a, a top end kitchen, well, probably not top end, but a, a say a freedom kitchen or a um, or a um, kinsman type kitchen; those are modular, standard size kitchens as well. Mm. They're just not sold that way. the um, The difference in in our model is that, um, for, firstly, it's a deep range. So we've got fifty six different variations of cabinetry, which we feel and have tested really fits with with minimal space loss across the kitchen. There is fillers, but um, you know nothing above two hundred mil, as you say. Mm. And when we do come across that type of feedback, we'll, we're constantly iterating the range based on it. So if we're finding that we need a 350 mil cabinet and there's enough demand for that that um, that's really causing some challenges for our customers, then we'd look to add it to range. Right. What what um, the other thing that the trade are and and the cabinet makers are skilled at is I can I can buy it's pre-assembled so I don't have um, I don't have the time of constructing a flat pack. It's a rigid carcass construction as well, so glue endowed, cam and pinned. Um, they can really provide strong confidence to their homeowner of the quality of what that kitchen is. But if they need to make a um, a single cabinet to fit a space, and there's always that, pardon me, there's always that um, that challenge of, you know, I need to fit a certain size TV or I've got a unique fridge or whatever that is. You'd think that we'd be able to solve that. 90- uh, the example I've had a lot of times is, what about a circular kitchen? Now, I've never seen one. Um, but I'm sure they do exist. Does does our offer fit that? Probably not. Um, would it fit some of it? Probably would. So it's really then up to the trade to determine what's the best way to solve that problem. Either use part of ours and make the rest, um, none of ours, and make the whole lot themselves. It's it's really a problem solved to each unique situation. Right. And so for the so for the tradesman, the other big thing is the cost of your product versus how much they can. How much it would cost them to produce a similar product? What, what um, are there any? Is there any? Gen, are there any general figures in, on that? Like what sort of whether it's in terms of what profit margins they they would expect to operate under, or what sort of cost basis difference? Yeah, it's a, again, a, a, it's probably a tough one to answer depending mm. on what the kitchen is. Um, what what we have on offer is a good, better, best position. So 
um, we've price positioned it that we feel that we can be really competitive against the entry level new home buyer or the, sorry the the first home owner who need needs to do a quick kitchen and has been watching the block. But I think I need I've got a budget of ten k fifteen k in the middle of the market. So um, our our lower offer is um, uh, Melamine Door cutting edge type solution. Then uh, we've got a foil solution in our better and then paint in our best. What, um, how we've positioned this is relative to the cabinet maker. Um, it'll be there or thereabouts, you know, plus or minus a, a small percentage, depending on what the job is, will be probably more competitive or less, depending on, you know, it's tough to answer. But what, what we really bring to the value here is speed. So you might make less per job, you might, you might make more, um, but you might make less on a certain job, but you can do more of them. And what we also think that our offer brings to that trade customer is the ability to make margin on areas that they wouldn't typically. So our, our offer is um, cabinetry, frontals, bench tops, sinks, taps, appliances, handles, internal storage, and more coming. So the the point of doing that is that um, where they may have sent the customer off, pre- the homeowner previously off to another place to get their appliances and sinks and taps our our customers can now click the t- ticket on those things and they can offer a service where all of that comes at once so project management is a lot easier the installs a lot easier we know it all fits because we've tested it all and we've solved a lot of those problems that mean that you can get in and out of an apartment for example within a day day and a half now it depends on the job obviously um, and you can do multiple multiple of those a week where with a bespoke kitchen that's a lot harder right my other concern for the trade is that then the trade's offering becomes even more homogenous because they they at the end of the day they're just they're just a bunch of installers. So that's a little bit of just just thinking from a cabinet maker's standpoint. Is I, I and I understand the position that you're coming from is well the industry's going that way and we'd like to be part of the solution because the, that's how the market's trending anyway. But there there is that little bit of concern which is and and i don't want to become overly romantic about the craft or the trade or whatever which is you know where a, a lot of the negative feedback comes from i imagine but is is that a concern for the tradesmen if they're unable to differentiate as as, as operators to the extent that they previously could does that make the any one person's product offering less competitive or just how, how does what are your thoughts around that yeah, it is a really good question, and I and I think what we've been talking about is kind of roll forward twenty years, but there's there's a whole journey between now and then, mm-hmm. and what what um, we're finding the trades that we're talking to really fall into a, a bunch of different um, categories depending on where their business cycle is up to, what their mindset is. But what we find is you talk to a cabinet maker who is full bottle and turning t- turning work away. Um, those guys see this as an opportunity to keep doing exactly what they've always been doing, but make more money from the from the leads that they've already generated through the success of their existing business. So we, we see this as an opportunity for those guys to grow. And by the way, when those customers do turn away, they are not going to another cabinet maker, or some, some of them are, but really it's lost to the market. They're going and buying a cheaper kind of imported type solution typically, because that's the thing that they control and can get done. The, there's another group of customers who, um, trade customers who who are doing this job today in a very similar way that um, they don't have their own equipment, they haven't built the scale to make for that to make sense. 
Um, so really, there's there's really no difference in what we're offering, apart from the fact that we save them a day a week of constructing that cabinetry or um, being able to make an offer that that is a really single single sourced, so that their their life should be a fair bit easier, and we can take some of that front end pain away from them as right. well. And then there's those customers who are really just, or those guys who have finished their trade and looking to go out on themselves. And and you hear about this often that they've gone and bought themselves, you know, a top of the range router. Um, they've made a fairly large investment and haven't really been able to make a go of it. And they've they've caused themselves some fair problems. But what I'm hoping is that this model really helps those guys build some scale before they make that leap. So, you know, build your customer base up, get your credibility into the market that you're getting good word of word of mouth referral, and then go buy your router and um, and really rather than put yourself at any risk beyond that. Australia is the largest, and, and I think this kind of speaks to that question around where's the market going. Australia is the largest importer of importer of flatbed routers in the world. Um, and that, is that per capita or just? No, that's in total. <laughs> And, and the reason for that is because we and New Zealand are really the last markets globally that's, that exist in this form. So, so again, we might be unique. Um, over time, that, that um, beauty of the trade, beauty of the craft might survive. Um, but global dynamics really ask, make you ask, is that, is that really going to happen? And, and we don't know. Um, there's a lot of things to play out here, but the risk for um, getting this wrong is, is huge for us as a business. We, we employ 1,300 employees across Laminex. Um, we've got five manufacturing sites around the country. If we don't fill our factories, then that knocks on to a whole bunch of other industries as well. So um, commercial, um, new home, multi-res, those kind of things that rely on the Laminex business. And, and Polytech business and other, other suppliers into Australia, if, if the cabinet maker trade is under threat, then we're under threat. Right, so you you see this you see Haven as a as a mechanism for which to decrease the barrier of entry into the market, especially as a business operator, um, and hopefully and to build the industry, to build the industry such that there is enough supply in the market to consume your products and meet the market demand as well. That, so there is that component as well. I, I see it a way of businesses. Growing where they currently sit, and, and it depends. If, if you've been doing this for 30, 40 years and, and um, really reaching the end of the cycle, to go start something new might be too big a leap. And, and my thinking for those customers, having spoken to plenty of them, is go for your life. Keep, keep doing what you're doing. If, you've, if you're making a good business, that's great. If you're turning work away and want to grow, um, then what we are hoping to do is uh, offer an opportunity for that. Or if you're um, if you're looking to make a half million dollar investment and go to the bank to do that, then what I'd like to offer just as an alternative is a way of de-risking that. Right. What, what I mentioned earlier is what I'm really hoping to do is also to grow the market itself. So by having a faster turnover of new homes, of, um, of kitchens within the home, as well as um, providing more confidence and de-risking that for the homeowner, um, Really, really, the appetite to do your kitchen more often is, I, I really hope, is there. Right. So, f- so from what you're saying, it's the uh, the direction of Haven Kitchens really aligns with the macro trend of where the industry is going, regardless of whether Haven exists or doesn't exist. If if it's not us, it's someone. Sure. And and what I'm hoping that the Haven business is really able to offer to 
the trade in Australia is some confidence that we're we're Australian made. We're we're here for supporting Australian industry. We we make our cabinets in Ballarat. We make um, we source our painted doors in Australia. We source our cutting edge doors in Australia. Um, we're, we're really very focused, and that that's the heart of the Laminex business is supporting supporting Australian trades, supporting Australian industry, supporting Australian employees. So if it's not us, it's someone. Um, what we well, what personally I worry about, and I've met plenty of cabinet makers, and you see them, and their kids, and their families, and um, if if it's not us, it's someone. Who are they? And if if it's an imported model who have different agenda, then um, then it's less it's probably less favourable for our customers. How so? How would it be? So the market is the market. So how would it be different if an imported model does win? In, in the market, what, why should can we be upset about that? No, I think I think market dynamics always win. Um, if you if you look to the rest of Europe, we've we've spoken about the UK, but you look to Italy, you look to Germany. Um, these are mega factories that that run the kitchen market in those so the, the Nobilios of the world. They're they're producing I don't know thirty thousand kitchens a week. It's it's a different market, different demands. Um, but then there is no Laminex in those businesses in those countries anymore. There is no real cabinet maker trade as they're in those countries anymore. The market has spoken. The dynamics have, have worked over time and it, and it is the mega factories that won. Right. So the, so there's, they've really eaten everyone. Yeah. So there's, there's no, there's no one in that. There's, it's fully vertically integrated except but, for the installer. There's an exception mm. always. There's some, yeah. um, you know, the guy who has carved a niche out within it, but they are the exception rather than the rule. Right. And and as a as a proportion of the total market, it's yeah. a insignificant amount. Yeah, they're much, much smaller. It previously like like Australia, it's a hundred percent cabinet maker, it's not hundred percent anymore. It's uh it's probably eighty percent of the market now is the bespoke kitchen, maybe less. And that's that's not increasing, it's decreasing. Right. So how does your product then differ to like a caboodle or a freedom or a kingsman and then to all like to the retail kitchen showrooms right like i don't know um like i've seen like mint mint impala miss, miss and mr kitchen yep, i've seen yeah there's there's plenty of them you know like uh the kitchen collect or like just all those how does that i i guess they're all sort of products on the spectrum between fully custom and imported trash uh Without being too, you know, uh, emotive about that, but that. So what? How do you see all that working? So, so I think there's room in the market for a whole, as you say, a spectrum of models, mm-hmm. um, and and the market really, really, the consumer will drive which ones of those get bigger and smaller over time. Mm-hmm. What we're worried about is the small guy um, who's who's putting his kids through school and doing all of those kind of things. That um, if if nothing changes, then there's a threat to them. What what we see is there is and it's a big market. It's a six and a half billion dollar market, the kitchen market in Australia. Um, there's there's players who are high end bespoke. There's entry level flat pack and um, either Australian made or imported. And and there's a whole gamut in between those two things. There's always going to be demand for um, you know fully project managed premium experience where I walk in, I can see my end kitchen. Um, and you know you're going through a high-end experience, and you pay for it. 
there's always going to be demand for, I can't afford that $60,000, $70,000 experience or, or more. Um, so I, you're talking about polyform data, like that type of- I'm talking like, like a high street, high street showroom okay. experience. Mm-hmm. Is, um, and, and they do a fabulous job. The, those guys are really, really good at what they do. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm an ex to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they play in a segment of the market that's not the whole market. Then there's, there's a segment of the market that- Dare I say it's a very small- Part of the market. It's 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 not the bulk. Mm. You're right. Um, then there's a segment of the market that is landlords or first home buyers that that have um, that don't have access to a huge amount of capital. They're not. They're, they just need something that they, that they can live in. I've just bought a house. This thing is unlivable. I can't work within it. I just need to do something so I can survive for the next two or three years without eating takeaway every night. Um, so those guys. It, again, have gone to the caboodles or the Ikeas and um, they've found a niche there. And then there's a big chunk in the middle, which is the cabinet maker market, as, as we've been talking about a lot today. What, what, there, there's a squeeze to that market coming both ways. And, and you see um, businesses like the Kitchen Collective you've mentioned, that, that is a, um, it's a, a Bunnings or a, um, a Bunnings-owned business. Mm. They are looking to roll up and down the East Coast. Uh, it's a it's a premium experience, but those guys are serious about what they do. They're very good at what they do, and they're not looking to they're not looking to um, play a light game. They want to they want to go hard. So if um, if you kind of accept that the dynamics are coming, somebody is going to play hard in this market. Um, we want to do we want to play hard in this market too, but do it in a way that that favours the trade. What we offer is really a trade solution to an impending problem. Right. So the market squeeze is coming whether you like it or not. Uh, jump on our ship and it may be a good ride. That's, perhaps. that's the message. What, yeah. Again, um, if it's not going to be for everyone. Mm. Um, we, we've designed a, an offer that and, – and the trades are craftsmen. Mm. Um, that's not, we've, we've heard constantly, that's not the way I do the back of my cabinet. That's, we, we use an 18 mil cabinet as an example. We edge it all around. We have the back of that, um, we put a thing in called a service void. The purpose of that was to allow the- So like a recess back. It is, yeah. And the purpose of that is that we're focused really on, we think the problem that we've just been speaking about today is really within the renovation market. And the renovation market walls are not typically lush. Mm. Um, there's there's protrusions, there's all of those How kind of things. How deep is that recess out of interest? It's uh, 62 mil. And the, the so if you've got a 580 carcass, you've got a 62 re- recess. It's a 580 back. carcass with a 62 recess, yeah. And, and then you, you cut down the ends as needed. Yeah. So it's a, a scribing service. It also allows for, um, you know, if you we, – we did a, a job uh, a couple of months ago which had um, – it was a, an apartment building, solid walls that had gas pipes running on the outside of the wall. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and rather than customise the cabinetry around it, just allowed a notch out for that to happen. What, what that won't fit is the 90%, which are, which are pretty standard installs. What it will fit is that last 10%. And the purpose of us having that, that service void in there gives our trade customers real confidence that I'm going to walk into a job and know it's going to fit um, rather than it only fits some of the time. Mm. And so that's the, what, what we've been finding talking to the trades is I hate that bit. Um, you know, that's not the way I do cabinets. Uh, and that's fine if that's, if that's the trade's view. Then, um, then we might not be the offer. Why, uh, out of curiosity, is it lost of space, or what is it? It's um, 
because it's 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 easy to it's much easier to install. It's different. I think is probably would, would be my reflection on it. So it's why everyone hates the new iPhone or the new exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now it's again we won't be able to convince everyone mm-hmm. of the benefits of that model. We we find that once you've used it a couple of times, that actually it really starts to grow on you. Um, but. It, it, it just won't be for everyone. If it's to go into a new home, I can see some real challenges with that service void. We wouldn't have designed it that way if our target market was the new home. So what, what's, the, what's the official guidance on how to screw that into a wall? So, so what we've um, built in, and in fact, I'd invite your listeners to um, look us up online and we can, or come and, come and see us and we can walk you through the way that works. Um, there's, a, there's a cavity or there's a gap in the back for screwing through. So there's a, basically a hinge that sits or is attached to the back of that service void against the wall with your normal fixings into it, and then you can screw through directly through the back of the cabinet to attach it to the wall. So you'd be using 100mm screws? Uh, it's, it's, um, it's whatever fixture, depending on what the wall is. Right, so you need to go through the 62mm void and then into it's the a long wall. screwdriver. So that, it's, it's actually a, um, it's a, we need a hole cover okay. for that, that hole at the back, but that's really just to put your drill right. bit through to attach it. So it's not an extra long screw for that. And then a wall cabinet's the same, or the wall different? cabinets don't have a void, right? There's no recess for wall cabinets. No, there's not. No. And I imagine you guys wouldn't have a corner wall cabinet in the library. Yeah, there is. There's there a is. Um, there's a nine forty one corner base and a six forty one um, wall cabinet as well. Now okay. we've we've launched with that range again, depending on what the feedback is, and, and that's been done in such a way to allow alignment between the base and the wall cabinets. Is how that range has been designed. Right. Um, again, we'll, we'll hear the feedback. So we've got a design also to allow different variations of blind wall, blind corners as well. Um, we, we think we've covered everything. We know that we haven't covered you know, that last 10% because we just don't know what it is yet. Um, what we're really looking from our customers is lots and lots of feedback. Our, mm. our whole model is built around being fast to iterate. Um, we know you're not going to get 100% right on the first go. We haven't got the right colours potentially on range. Um, we haven't got you know, every single different cabinet variation that solves every single different problem. Um, so as we start to get that feedback, we'll prioritise what the biggest one is and then go build that into market. What, as an example, what we, um, what we learnt through our test installs and as our first customers that have gone into market is that um, there was a problem with that service void that I've just been speaking about that for when you use that as a sink cabinet, the gap that's required to have a pull-out sink um, is restricted by where that service void is. So we've gone and redesigned and, and are about to introduce into market or into our range a um, three different cabinets dedicated for sinks, which have the basically the, the back wall um, directly to the back of the cabinet. Right. So, so let's say I'm a cabinet maker. I get a client who comes to me who's um, doing a renovation. And they say, I want a kitchen built. And for whatever reason, whether it's capacity constraints or because I love working with Haven, I say, okay, why don't we – uh, install a Haven kitchen for you. Uh, we then contact Haven and uh, organise with the client a design consultation where a Haven designer comes out to the site, measures and goes through colour selection, design, layout, all those things with the client. Haven then passes on that information from that meeting uh, to us as the cabinet maker. We receive a quotation from Haven which indicates the trade cost associated with that's right. That job, yep. including all associated, any other associated fixtures, fittings, appliances. Exactly. Bench tops. Uh, and then we then 
submit a price to the client for that selection uh, with whatever margin we're charging, whatever install, so whatever install cost um, overheads that we factor in and margin that we add on. Yep. Uh, and then if they, should they choose to accept the quotation, all payments and everything happens. So we, they con- so we contract to them directly. So the, the contractual relationship is between the client and us as a cabinet maker directly. That's right. And so, then, yeah. So what we, um, what we kind of say, the reality is that um, we haven't had a lot that have gone this way um, because cause the trade actually are a lot more organised than um, – than say I, I am personally, um, that they're often thinking five, six weeks mm-hmm. or longer ahead. But what, what in theory, if there's an urgent job come through, you could do that design consult in the morning, quote through, turn that around and be accepted this afternoon, pick up all of the parts and start installing that afternoon. Mm-hmm. So, that, so the speed of that turnaround is, is one of the key benefits that we can offer and, and that will happen. Um, mm-hmm. It will be the exception rather than the rule, to be honest about it, but it's a, it's a nice feature to have. What, what we um, also offer for our trade customers is some expertise around um, and, and uh, the designer is really a service for the trade. And so as that, um, as that design consult's going through, um, really what our guys have been trained on is really understanding what the requirements are and how to deliver a solution for that homeowner, but also to come back and give feedback to the trade around who else they've been t- speaking to, um, what kind of price points they're looking for in the market, and our, our job is to help the trades make more money. So if, um, if they're thinking this is a 15,000 job and our, our kind of learnings through that, inside, through that consult is it's only a $13,000 job in their mind, what we can help is find some ways of value engineering that out. Or if it's really a seventeen dollars or $18,000 job, how to price that to be able to get as much money out of it as possible without losing or, or still making sure we're, we're um, helping that trade make as much money as possible without losing the job. So it's contracting out the sales design administrative. Yeah. So so it's really, um, it's not looking to present ourselves as the answer to all of those. We, what we're looking to do is value add. So um, so you know we'd we'd give guidance or here's what I've heard. Here's some things you might want to consider, almost almost as a coach or another piece of information to help right. help the trade make informed decisions around where to price. Right. So just going back to that that journey, I was just going through just to understand the product. So. That relationship is between the client and us directly as a cabinet maker. It is, yeah. And then whatever payment terms, whatever that's that's up to us to work out with the client. It, it is, yeah. Um, what what we hear often for the market is that um, the trade will charge the customer in in stages. Um, what we offer is standard trading terms for the trade. So it's um it's thirty days um, trading terms is is our mm-hmm. typical offer. Um, now what what we understand is that there's a payment up front typically for the trade there's a payment on a pickup of the goods and there's a payment at conclusion of the job so what as a, as a trade what we can really help with is cash flow um, that you're not paying us until you've re- received 100 percent of what your payment is from the homeowner uh, as well as assuming it, a project life cycle of 45 days or less yeah. yeah yeah now now the fact that it's ready to pick up you're really not doing that until um, if, if it's taking you 45 days to install that job, then we'd love to find a way of helping you, um, helping you to make that faster. <laughs> yeah. I'd say something much meaner than that, but yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah, so um, so really our model, again, to make the trades life easier, um, a lot of our customers as we see them would be at the smaller end, so, so cash flow is really quite important. 
um, we're, we're definitely not targeting the large, you know, um, national uh, uh, cabinet maker. We're looking, we're looking for those customers that are hungry to grow their businesses, but really at the small end of the market is where we think our sweet spot is and, and cash is something we can help with. Right. So based on the market research you've done, what sort of profit margins are cabinet makers expecting versus what they're traditionally Again, a tough, op- a tough offering? Again, a tough one to answer because it varies so much by job, mm. as you'd know. Um, what, what we're hoping is if, um, if you're just doing an install, the rates that we understand in the market, and, and don't quote me on these, mm. it's going to vary so much. Of course. Um, but, but a typical just install part is $1,400, $1,500. For, for a typical kitchen. And then the cabinet maker would look to um, value add to that and the fact that they're doing and they've got to pay their factory and all of those things sitting behind it. So they might, might look to um, make four or $5,000 out of that job. Out of, say, a fifteen to $20,000. Exactly. In yep. terms of a, that's a gross margin, though. Yes. A gross margin, yep. yeah. What, what we can offer is a similar level. So of a gross profit. margin including installation. Including install. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Um, and, and these are just rough numbers. Yes, that are in, we're just, indicative. just just toying with the uh, – yep. yes. What, right. what we can offer is a similar margin there or thereabouts, maybe $500 less. Mm. Um, what, what we've saved is the requirement for all of the lost time at the beginning um, that we've spoken about. If you don't have your own factory and have to do the assembly of that, then um, we've saved you a day of assembling that kitchen as well. Um, and the fact that you can do two of them in the week rather than just one, um, you, you could do those numbers and – Pretty quickly, what I'm hoping is that the trade will see this as a real opportunity to make more money. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's the, uh, like you said, the startup costs. I mean, a router and an edger and a, and a three-year lease is a lot of money. It's a lot. Uh, so now, that- now, we want those guys to we want those guys to do it. Don't get me wrong. If if we can make, help but, somebody make but so I much guess money, that's not. If the consumer is, if the consumer is buying a $15,000 kitchen, my question to the industry is, is your product really going to be that much better than a standard size offering? And, and, that's, and that's something that I'm, 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 I genuinely want people to think about when they think about craftsmanship and artistry and all that. Like we're talking about, at the end of the day, we're talking about a $10,000, $15,000 kitchen. Is your offering for the consumer going to be better than a standard size offering? There, there are things that the trade, like there's expertise. Um, so I, I, I'm with you. I think it's the right question to be asking, by the way. Mm. Um, and, but there is expertise that the trade bring, which is of huge value. Which is why you guys aren't doing a vertically, in, vertically integrated service with installers and all that, because that's, that's the variable. That's, such, that's, that's where you can't control for so much. Yeah, and, and I think for us to go into the install part as well, we really are no longer about helping solve an industry problem we, we actually become part of the problem well, out of curiosity can would you be able to make a business case for a fully vertically integrated model would like would that would you be able to make a business case for it and scale it nationally if you if you um if you kind of look at where the margins sit there's there's money in owning the the full end-to-end through to consumer mm. um my my and we we looked at it and dismissed it pretty quickly. To be honest, as we were building the business case, obviously because it, there's a there's a serious conflict there with with yeah, your your that, major business. But just out of curiosity, with all the research and all your not all the research you've done about the market, and because because if it makes sense, then you got to expect that someone else is is looking into it as well. 
Uh, personally, so if it, it doesn't my, make if, sense. If it was my money, mm. um, is maybe the best way I can answer that. I wouldn't do it, and and the reason for that is um, there are plenty of uh, retail type brands out there in the market, and they spend a, a huge amount of money on showroom. They spend a huge amount of money on marketing. They spend a huge amount of money on um, on their client, chain client service, and, and, uh, yeah. all, all of those things. Either you spend it on the front end or the back end, or you spend it across both. Mm. Spending it across both, for me personally, is prohibitive. Mm. Um, to to be able to focus on building out the infrastructure to be able to make the product as well as all of that front end cost and build a brand that's national that really makes sense is um is probably it would be a hugely risky strategy. Well, the back end's where you get predictable predictable outcomes, whereas the front end is. A lot of most of the unpredictable stuff in the process. Yeah. Now, now there are those which, which comes with higher margin, but that's naturally because of the risk profile and yeah, this the non-scalability yeah. or and, and and there are consumers who love the value of the brand and will pay a premium for a certain brand. Mm. And and if you look at some of the big players where the market share sits for the large brands mm. in the retail offering, the freedoms of the world. Um, they they produce a great product. They um, they charge for it, uh, and they're not sitting at that thirty five thousand dollar you know premium end of the cabinet maker market. They sit above it. Um, so so there's there's value in there. There's money in there. Um, but will they end up taking a huge chunk of the market? No, they'll they'll still exist, but they'll they'll own the, the share of the market that they own. Yeah, I I don't. I mean, from my understanding of. Uh, freedom or even like a caboodle very cursory limited understanding uh their product isn't necessarily cheap and from what i can tell they operate a very high margin business especially like a freedom and whatnot and i don't really think that they're providing you know compared to the more like smaller players i don't think that they're providing a better product yeah But, but haven i can see fitting in because it is more it is a lower price point it is more mass market and the key, key thing is I think there's something there for the consumer and, and the consumer drives it. Yeah, we, we, um, we, we think there's room in the market for many players and there's, there's a space in the market for, for the freedoms as well. There's customers who love it. Um, but what, what we really hope is- Really? That, well, well, there, <laughs> there is. Um, in fact, I had a customer the other day who went with a freedom kitchen. We, we hadn't opened at that stage, by the way, but I was speaking to a, a friend of a friend who had just bought a freedom kitchen and their answer why they did that was because they really engaged with the designer somebody who spoke to them who really understood what their needs were and those guys are very very good at what they do um so what we're hoping is we can bring that level of service to the cabinet maker as well we can take away the 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 pain of the selection Mm. um which which some of our customers hate Mm. um you know having a having a wall of chips is a tough way to pick a kitchen yeah um and we're really hoping that we can take some of that pain away and offer the that that really great um end-to-end painless experience for the homeowner that those Mm. those freedoms of the world offer um they project manage everything they take a lot of pain away it's it's a can be a great experience as a homeowner sure Um, but we we hope that we can add enough of those elements to the smaller cabinet maker that they can go compete yeah um i want to ask some selfish questions Go for, it. For, for, for myself um especially with your your background i i think you may be able to provide some value uh so i i run a a, a bespoke high-end architectural joinery company service 
and we'll tie in things like metalworks, upholstery, stone, solid surface, all those things to create really, uh, to solve really difficult problems, mm. primarily for architects. What do you, and, and as you said, there is uh, from the spectrum of custom to really high end, much more high end than what we do, uh, that's, that still represents the majority of the market. So what do you, if we just isolate that to the guys, say, doing high end or really high end, what, what do you see coming? What, what, you know, would there be any advice or any thoughts for us to what we should look out for and whether it's labor resource challenges or whatever this, you know, what, what, what do you see in store for us? Wow, good. <laughs> that is a good question. Um, I, I think that end of the market is probably more insulated from some of the dynamics we've been talking about today than any other. Um, the, once you might, and this is just personal view that I'm talking about here. Of course. When you get to um, you know, that $100,000 kitchen or, or the equivalent level of other custom joinery, whatever it is within a house or a commercial application, specialty, specialty and expertise is really what's going to win it. Um, and, and the ability to offer um, something that takes the pain away from the architect, takes the pain away from the homeowner, that, that's something that is a lot harder to offer from a mastige type offer that, that we have and plays. Um, so, so I think the, the dynamics of what will change over the next 10 or 20 years, I see less, less risk in those. Now, it's ne- nothing's ever risk-free, but I see less risk at that end of the market because I, I can't see anywhere else. And you, and you look globally, which I've spent a lot of time doing. Um, that segment of the market remains fairly untouched globally. There has been no major disruption that I've seen anyway that's really hurt hurt that end of the market. What what I do see though is a couple of things. If again, if you play the tape of what could happen over the next couple of years, is as other parts of the market change, then the smart businessmen and there's plenty of them around start to cast their eye to where there's value, and so the the threat of new entries or migration to new segments of the market is is a real possibility over the next ten years. So that's, that's, I think, establish a, a position and being able to defend against that is always going to have to be the case. Whether, whether that change that we've been talking about in the middle of the market does play out or not, there's always going to be new entrants. Right. I, th- I think any business that really understands what their customers' problems are, that really understands where their pain points are and finds a way of bringing solutions to that is going to be successful. Right. And where do you see the skilled labour market going for cabinet makers or more broadly if I've, I've so been, I'm sure you've looked into that I, I have I've been wrong on this for 20 years um one way or the other what, so. no more cabinet makers CNC is only <laughs> <laughs> no I, I um I spent a time working in an industry where and I was in WA at the time when mining booms were on and zero un- zero unemployment was a, a real possibility mm-hmm. um the the example I gave back then um in, a, in actually a very similar forum to this one was I, I think of the story of the guy in the savannah who's um, getting stalked by a cheater, him and his mate. Mm. Um, one of them stops, reaches down and starts putting tying up his running shoes. His mate goes, what are you doing? This is a, it's a cheater. You're not going to be outrun it. Mm. And, and he looks up at his mate and says, I don't have to outrun it. I just have to outrun you. Mm. And, and my, the reason I talk to that is that um, the, the employer – that really understands and looks after their team 
mm. the employer that is able to offer something different as far as flexibility. Mm. Um, we, we go to money. I don't think it's always, well, we all know it's not always about money. It's about how good your boss is, um, how, how much fun it is to go to work, what my challenges are. The, that, that employer is the one who's going to win that race. But I think there is a real squeeze on market and skilled labour in Australia. Uh, that, that's happening now. So you don't have to go too far forward to see how that could or would play out. It's really the good employer who I think is going to win that. I, I love that analogy and how I would say it is um, if, if you're not smart and if you're not smart with how you – if you're not thoughtful and smart about how you go about things and just complain – then you deserve to die because the cheater's going to eat you. Yeah, and, and there's um, re- really the, the world's caught up. The, mm. the bad employer who, who mistreats their team, they, they, they've, they've been burned already. You know, pe- people are smart enough to, to not do that anymore, um, but, but there are exceptions to that. Yeah. yeah I mean, my, my personal uh, philosophy with HR is you have to really think about uh, in a way that it's you're working for your guys. And that's, it may be counterintuitive, but that's how you actually get the most out of them. That's how you get the most engaged, aligned, passionate people working for you. Yeah, I think we're, we're, um, ha- having a, an engaged team, having a team that really catches a vision of what you're trying to do and having clarity around that, having a team of smart people, mm. it pays for itself in spades. I think having a, a problem shared as a business of we're facing this challenge or I've got this customer who's trying to solve this problem, having the right people in the room to help solve that who you can really rely on and trust and who understand what you're about and what you stand for, um, you're going to win every time. Yeah. What a apart from, say, labour, what, what would you say for just to generally to business owners out there, what sort of – what else would you ask them to keep your, like, keep an open mind toward, and what should they look out for? Just to, because you know, we started this conversation saying, look, you guys are here to to help the the trade and and to help the industry, and you are uniquely aligned. And we haven't spoken about what's in it for Laminex. Yeah, you are uniquely aligned with cabinet makers succeeding, as as you've stated, because no cabinet makers means less people buying board, which is the core part of the business, which will remain a core part of the business. It is. Perhaps, yeah. yeah, that's what Laminex is about. And, and so, what just and just uh, in that in that vein, what what else what else what other information would you pass on to or things to think about for cabinet makers? I could philosophize all day. I've got a couple that um that are probably top of mind for me. Mm. Um, I think, and I hate the phrase. In fact, it turns my stomach a little bit. These unprecedented times, mm. um, but but we are in a never seen never seen before world, mm. and and that plays out in things like capital. So, so the amount of money available into the market today has never been seen before. Cheap, cheap capital. So asset prices have gone crazy. Um, the, the ability to get funding is probably at a point that, that um, is going to be difficult to see again in my lifetime. Uh, and the ability of the governments to spend the amount of capital into markets that they are at the moment and are likely to through COVID recovery is um, is also unprecedented and will never happen again in my lifetime, is, would be my bet. So I, I'd suggest to watch the space carefully. I don't know how that's going to play, 
Um, but the free money mindset that's really driven asset prices over the last four or five years and and will for some time. Um, but I wouldn't make large investments that put you at risk of that turning the wrong way or at least um, make sure that you've got um, you know backstops in place that is say interest rates start rising or um, or if you're reliant on a significant overdraft that the bank could um, could start tightening up on make sure that you've thought that through before you really get yourself exposed so so it's just good business management rather than alarmism around some threats for capital but it's an area that will change is my is my call out there is my personal view it's not it's not really something that i've spent a lot of time talking to others about so haven't yeah. really tested it to be completely honest so just be very thoughtful about capital expenditure how you're going to service those financial facilities that you're undertaking and it's, think it's, about inflation relative to all that as well yeah I, I mentioned right at the beginning i've got a finance background so prudence probably lies in my heart mm. and, and it drives my wife crazy crazy um it's the same as with anything you know if you go to buy a house if you go to make a large investment mm. or um I'd, I'd just call out to make sure that you've i've got a high risk appetite personally mm. um I, I think i do um but you can talk yourself into anything or out of anything and i'd just say take the time to do mm. a, a logical process before you make a huge investment yeah so you, you said you've got a high appetite for risk. Are you, are you in the crypto stuff? And I, I wish. Non, Des- non-fungible. wish I was. Have you heard of non-fungible tokens? I have, yeah. yeah. I, I, um, I'd say my risk appetite is different to that. Um, and, <laughs> different and, to what us kids are doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, and, and I am a, <laughs> a bit older. I remember the day where that guy bought that pizza for, what, 40,000 Bitcoin or something like that. Mm. It was, That's a classic, isn't it? It was that. that that, and I've heard him interviewed actually recently and saying he'd do it the same again. But, but Jesus, that's, a, that's an expensive pizza. Sure. Um, uh, my, my risk appetite is really around um, diligence, do the, do the data, but don't talk yourself out of it, an action from it. So uh, I'd like to convince myself of a dynamic, like we've been speaking about, the dynamic around what's happening within the market for Australia for cabinet making. Um, but that's not a rash move. It's, it's logically driven. It's based on global search. It's based on the data that we see that the cabinet maker, there's, there's less cabinet makers in Australia today than there was 10 years ago. There's less to next year than there will be this year. Actually, that might not be true because COVID's really going to um, lift the tide high, I think, for the next couple of years as far as mm. the cabinet making market goes. Mm. It's, a, it's a good time to be busy. Mm. Um, but when the tide goes out, when, when the world starts to return to some form of semblance of normal what i think the reality will be is that the deck chairs have shifted around Mm. and so there is more imported there's more um there's different players in the market than there were three four years ago and so i've convinced myself of that so in some ways this is the ripe time for disruption for you guys it is well maybe if i reframe that there is disruption happening and I'd rather be, and it's a great entry point into that. Yeah, I'd I'd rather be having a having a friendly partner on my side helping with that disruption rather than I'm going to fight somebody else who's got different motives. Right. Do you think we've pretty much covered everything that you would have wanted to talk about? I, I've I've really enjoyed it, by the way. Thank um, you. I, I think we've covered a lot more than I expected to. So yeah. so we've touched on some areas outside of just the. 
yeah. the, the standard what we're trying to do with Haven, and it's been yeah. great. Thank you. I I think I I just want to summarise for the tradesmen. I, I I think because most of the audience listen to this would be more in the trade. My my thought around this is, you know, you just you can't fuck with the market. Like the market is the market is the market, and it's going to happen. And really. Uh, you know, I'm a younger guy, so I want to be respectful about the way I say this, but don't overly romanticize the craft or the trade or whatever, because that's not going to pay the bills at the end of the day. You know, you have to be really, in my opinion, sensible about, you know, being open to where this market is going. And if if the $15,000 kitchen market isn't going to work for you anymore, then maybe transition, like you said, people will transition. Um, or maybe realize that you can't beat them and join them i think that's i think that's important i do, I do think there's a transition so if if you do um love your craft and love your mm -hmm. trade and love spending your time on the tools um there's there's still plenty of time to do that what I, what i challenge your audience to do also is is there another revenue stream you can bolt on in the meantime mm -hmm. whether you believe or not what it is that i'm saying um i i do think there is some immediate opportunities to make more money than you're making today Cool. And Laminex is still committed to making good board and doing all that. Yeah. Well, hey, people, a lot of people don't like your website and I, and I don't want to hurt your feelings. I know you were part of that. I that, was part of it. Part of the <laughs> e commerce. Yeah. But what's with the search function on the website? We, um, well, it's, a, it's a really good question. Um, <laughs> and I could spend some time on it. Um, we, we've actually so call my, out the developers. Yeah. Who, yeah, who programmed that? Um, yeah. the, the short answer is we made some. Um, some design decisions early in how that was put together. Um, and what we've gone and done since then is high actual expertise. So there's a head of digital within Laminex now, sits on the executive team. Um, they're doing a lot of investment in that digital place. Mm. Um, and, and our customers the, and, the, and the market will see some changes flow through in that in coming months and years. Um, it's a, it's a, place that we'll continue investing into the search, the search function itself to answer your question really was a choice around um it, it's essentially two systems bolted together mm. and um we had some choices around how they, they could be bolted together we made one that resulted in a difficult search choice <laughs> um, well at in, least the phone in, lines are still good and in the, hindsight would go back and fix that the, or the customer service team is still good, so that's still an easy enough way of ordering. Yeah, and, and what we've found is that, um, like, we made some choices around withdrawing whiteboard from that that e-commerce platform um, because we had constraint. We going into COVID made the tough choices, thinking that the market was about to turn down twenty five to thirty percent. Thirty two percent was the number that we um, that we were thinking at the time. We made it, some, then it went up 64% or something. did the opposite. <laughs> and, and we are reliant for that last. So we've, we've turned all our factories on. They're all running 24-7. Um, we, we've actually got no more, no more growth capacity um, without starting to make the incremental improvements, which we continue to make. Um, we've been previously able to import product from South Africa, from Europe or other, which is acted, or New Zealand, which has been acting as our buffer. Those supply chains have really dried up because all of the demand for South Africa is being consumed in South Africa, all the demand for Europe is being consumed in Europe and so on. So, um, so we don't have the buffers that we had previously. We've, um, we've been lucky through the, well, lucky-ish, through the most recent, it's probably a bittersweet response here that um, 
demand has dropped probably over the last couple of months. It's allowed us to catch up and we've removed constraint on whiteboard. Mm. So so hopefully the market's in a slightly better spot than what has been for the last yeah. 18 months. Cool. And yeah. there's still going to be shortages for some time coming, right, from a macro standpoint? Yeah, yeah, there will. Um, and that's it's not just COVID either, um, but it, but a lot of it is COVID. So global shipping lines mm. are um, they're hurting, or well, they're not hurting; they're loving life. But they've <laughs> they're, they're charging. Sh- they're, well, they've shifted their capacity towards um, shorter runs, so US to Europe, um, China to Europe as well. Um, so so all of the capacity of the market has really shifted to where the volume of population sits, and that's north. Um, so that means that the Australian lines have got bigger ships, but less often, mm. and really still less capacity than it normally would have, and that has made made um, shipping rates skyrocket. Um, we're now at spot rates for a lot of those things, which are enormous. We haven't seen that for a very long time, and it just means that um, when you're sourcing something out of Europe, for example, which um, which a lot of our customers do, then um, then you're kind of last in the chain because not only you're paying higher shipping rates to get it here or it's embedded within the prices but you're also um you're also competing with demand which is just around the corner that can turn around really quickly yeah that's um that's great insight and i i really um i i kind of um and i i do get a, a genuine sense from you guys that you are um I hesitate to say trying to, and, and I mean this with with respect. I hesitate. I says I hesitate to say trying to really, or, ha- or helping the cabinet maker as being a, a core part of the mission. Right. I, but I I do see alignment there from an economic. Like I see the economic uh, incentives there as to why there would be that alignment. So I certainly appreciate that, and all the advice that you've given on just those things to think about, about capital expenditure and whatnot, and just being careful about growing your business during this time. Um, I really appreciate that. And also, of course, the insight into Haven Kitchens. My pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, I personally, I'm, I'm very interested in seeing how, how the kitchen, sort of how the industry is going to play out. Um, it's an industry that I'm personally quite new to, but um, yeah, I think I agree with you. It is ripe for destruction. Uh, disruption yeah um i do i do honestly think most of that market that you guys are going to be operating in uh could operate a lot more efficiently if some parts were more centralized um so yeah i'm excited to see where where this is all going to go me too what 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 i'd really encourage your listeners to do is to um particularly if you're melbourne based or if even even if you're not um Feel free to pick up the phone or come and see one of our trade centers when we're open to do that um, because you'll see the reality. Look, you, you, all, all of our sites are 1,000 square metres plus, stock on the shelves. Um, you'd, you'd be able to see the reality of is what it is I'm talking about. You'd see how we treat your customer, the homeowner. Um, you'd be able to see some prices as an example. So um, kind of get a good sense about where we're pitching ourselves in the market and how you'd be able to make money. It's, it's, it's Come and test it. Yeah. Be my, yeah, I'm. I'm definitely going to come, come through, have a look because I'm very interested. Great, very curious. Well, we um, we're in Dandenong, Oakley, Windsor. We're about to open one in Thornbury as well. So, um, we we cover a fair bit of southeast so, Melbourne. We, so, we, it's a it's a tight yeah. model that we're launching. Um, really, again, to that saving time 
making the trade's life easier, that you're not travelling you know, 20, 30, 40 minutes each way, um, potentially a couple of times. We're, we're, we're in a test, so we'll refine this model over the next um, next year or so, add to our range, adjust it, make sure we hear the feedback that we're getting, and then depending on how that goes, we'll look to expand. Awesome. Thank you and continued success. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Yeah.